Hey, this is Paul with realestateaudios.com, where we bring you the inside of what's working in real estate investing today from real world investors in the trenches right now. And like many of you, I've been there, I've lost money and deals in real estate, frustrated as hell, all while still having a family with kids and a W 2 job to manage. So that's why I created this podcast to help you find out what's actually working today and move you forward towards success. All right, so you'll be listening to the author, coach, and still active investor, Rachel Hernandez. Rachel has been successfully flipping mobile homes in parks for passive income for over a decade, and she's still happily turning over these assets into long-term monthly cash flow machines. So in this interview, you'll discover the exact methods of how she does it, what her best lead generation strategy is, how to build relationships so that deals flow to you on a consistent basis. This is a lesson for any type of investor, actually. How she manages and chooses contractors, how she chooses parks, and much more. So there's one more thing before we get started. If you want to learn more about flipping mobile homes in a park for cash flow and how Rachel does it, go to realestateaudios.com slash Rachel. That's R-A-C-H-E-L slash Rachel for a free gift exclusive to podcast listeners. All right, let's get to it. So Rachel, first thing, how did you get started in mobile homes? Well, like Lonnie Scruggs, and sometimes he's called the godfather of mobile home investing. I've actually met him a couple of times in person and he mentored me over the years. I was a burnt out landlord. So as a landlord, I had to go through move-ins and move-outs and evictions and phone calls late at night. Even when I had property managers managing my property, so just a lot of, you know, tenant headaches. So it got to the point where I actually wanted to get out of real estate investing for good. That is until I read Lonnie Scruggs' book. Back then it was a course, Deals on Wheels. And then reading that book changed my life. And that's why I'm where I am today. It's basically changed the way I look at real estate investing. And I actually enjoy it more now, doing mobile homes. How long ago was that? That was a while back. I've been doing mobile homes now for over a decade. And I started in real estate investing, doing wholesaling and bird dogging, looking for deals for other investors back in the early 2000s. So it had to be somewhere in the early to mid 2000s. Okay. And are you still active in mobile homes today? Yes, I am. Okay, cool. Can you kind of go through your first deal with the mobile home? Well, my first deal, it was a two-bedroom, one-bath, and the family who owned the home had been in the park for over 10 years. They were long-term residents of the park. Though it was an older home, they kept it in fairly good condition. So I went through the home and I liked it. And to make a long story short, it took a few trips to gain rapport and build a relationship. And we did some negotiating back and forth. So eventually, I bought the home for $3,600 cash. And before I took possession of the home, they actually cleaned it for me as well, too. So that was a bonus. And then I marketed the home. I found a nice family for it. This family gave me $1,000 as a move-in fee and paid me $250 per month for the next four and a half years. It was my most memorable deal, and I still do business in that park today. Nice. Yeah, the first deal is always that memorable. So 
did you find it the transition going from single family to mobile homes a little easier? Well, since I did have the experience and I do have a marketing and sales background, I was a sales executive for a Fortune 500 for many years. It kind of was the same thing because I just had a market for sellers and then market for finding residents and filling homes. So on that end, it was the same, but it was a little bit different because with single family homes, the neighborhoods pretty much you can get into the single family home neighborhoods and buy properties as long as you negotiate everything with the seller. If you buy mobile homes in mobile home communities, there's one step you need to do beyond that. And that is talking to the park manager or the owner of the park to make sure that you can do business in their community before you actually buy a home in their community from a seller. So that made the process quite difficult. Actually, when I had read Monty's book, I tried it for a while, and I just got turned off. I, I mentioned this in my book, Adventures in Mobile Homes. Well, basically, I got turned off and then stopped reading about uh, mobile homes until a few years after that. Then I got into it again, and I just forced myself to get to know the parks and the park managers and owners in the community where I want to buy. So that was the hard part. Okay, so are your students, is that a hard step, talking with managers, getting a good rapport with managers? Absolutely. It is difficult. What I tell my students is that you just got to keep trying. And if you're not on the same level as that park manager or owner for whatever reason, And you got to do it face-to-face. You can't do it over the phone. It's not going to work. If you're not on the same level with that person or for some reason you just, your personalities don't match, you got to find another park and another manager or owner to work with and just keep going and keep trying. Eventually, you will find someone willing to work with you. Do you usually find the parks willing to work with you first or do you just go ahead and market to sellers? No, actually, so when I first read Lonnie Scrub's book, Deals on Wheels, I actually started marketing to sellers first, and then I had to go and talk to the park manager, and she wouldn't let me work in the park, and I kept going back to her, and it was still no, so that's when I got turned off. So from that lesson, I learned that you really need to build a relationship with the park manager or owner of the parks that you want to do business in before you start marketing to sellers, unless you intend to buy a home in that community and move it out of the park. Is that a difficult process to move? Because I always thought that was too expensive, hard process. So how do you describe that process? Yeah, it's not an easy process, and I wouldn't recommend it on someone's first deal. I did move a mobile home earlier in my mobile home investing career. It had to be either my third or fourth deal, I don't remember. But the home was just down the street from the park. So I wasn't moving the home very far. But what made it difficult is just kind of the process, getting my team together, the movers, the floppers for the connection, the air conditioning person. It made it easier since the park was very close by and it was local. But for someone just starting out, I I wouldn't recommend moving a, a mobile home. If you can, just start in a community and leave it there. 
Yeah. And your whole system, these are called Lonnie deals, right? Correct. Yes. Uh-huh. So can you go ahead and describe what a Lonnie deal is for people who don't know? Sure. So basically, a Lonnie deal is, so when you're buying a home, no matter if it's a mobile home or single family home, there are a couple of ways to buy it. You can buy it through cash. You can get a lender to finance it, such as a bank, or you can get it kind of owner financing. And so what Lonnie Trump taught, the godfather of mobile home investing, is that he would actually act as a bank and owner finance the transaction for the people buying. So basically, a Lonnie deal, you actually act as a bank and you have, like, you're lending money to the person and they have a promise to pay you back for the amount that you agreed upon. That's basically what a Lonnie deal is. I do it a little bit different than Lonnie. So basically, in a Lonnie deal, you actually transfer the title to the person purchasing the home. What I do is actually a lease with an option to purchase. And basically, the difference is that I don't transfer the title and I give people options. So a person has a lease with me, but then there's a separate agreement where they have an option to purchase the home if they like in a certain period of time if they want to. The thing about that is people are not bound to an agreement, so they're not forced to buy the home if they don't want to. Things come up, divorce, people getting sick, job loss, etc. If you were to purchase the home, that would actually be on your credit as a foreclosure. And to, to a lot of people, that's kind of scary. So Interesting. So instead of selling to a buyer, to an buyer with payments, you instead basically just rent it out with them and then there's a separate agreement. Well, it's part of the agreement, an option to purchase it if they want. Correct. And it gives them options. So if they do want to buy the home, they have that option to do it versus they're kind of set in it. And if something happens down the road, which sometimes they do, you never know with life then it gives them kind of peace of mind. Okay, I have this option to do this. Have you done both actually transfer ownership and sell with payments versus rent? Have you done both? No, even when I first started out, I didn't do that where I'm actually transferring the ownership over. Actually, to be honest with you, I do know people who've done it successfully. I know one of Lonnie's other students, and he did, you know, 45 deals that way. And, you know, it's all a matter of your personality and how you want to do business with the other person. And for me, I just felt comfortable doing the lease with an option to purchase compared to a just transferring over the title and then being the lender. Do you have run into trouble with park managers doing this? Because there's, the, at least in here in Southern California, a lot of parks look down upon leasing, subleasing, I should say. No, uh, they don't see it. As, so I just basically tell them that these people are not just renters, but they have the option to purchase it. And so having that option, of course, you want to take care of that home. And I like really, really do screen people. Uh, when I go through my screening process, Paul, they don't go to the office until I do my screening process. And I make sure the people that I choose actually can follow the rules and regulations of the park. So it really is up to personality at that point. How do you go about screening them? 
Well, basically, when they call, I have a sign in the yard or on the home, and then I just have to ask them, you know, the regular question, how did you find out about the home and what questions do you have? And if they're more interested in the home and they've actually got family that lives there or they've got friends who live in the community and it was a referral from the park manager or from people who actually live in the community, I take those people more seriously than people who actually call and they were just driving by and they were thinking about living there, but they're not sure. And then they ask me about the schools and where's the gas station. I know those people are just kind of looking around. So it just comes with experience in terms of screening people. And then once I have, you know, a couple people who are interested in the home, serious buyers, I set up a time for an open house, usually it's on Sundays in the afternoon, where everyone that I feel over the phone is a good prospective candidate can come in and take a look at the home. And then from there, the people who are actually interested in the home, they will take an application with me, and then I just have to run my own application before they are approved and go on to apply for the park application. Okay, so you are looking at their income level and everything? Yeah. Okay. Does your system pretty much work with your students in any state? Yeah, I mean, as long as, I mean, this can be done with anything. I've actually had some residents who actually buy furniture on a lease with an option to purchase from some furniture companies. So this can be done with any kind of product. I would tell people who want to get into mobile home investing, you really need to take the time to get to know the people you're working with. And that includes the park managers, the owners, your contractors, the residents who intend to live in the homes. Be careful who you work with. That's probably my number one tip because you need to just choose wisely and make sure you're both on the same level and your personality can work with theirs and vice versa. Because otherwise, if you choose the wrong people to work with, it can all tumble down. Hey, let me interrupt this for a quick tip because there's a free offer for you to learn more about this unique and low competitive niche that I've used and I've profited from. So head to realestateaudios.com slash Rachel to claim that free gift so you can learn how to work this low competitive but profitable niche. And this is exclusive to podcast listeners. Okay. And do you find that a larger majority of people are exercising the option to buy? Actually, the majority of people are. There are some, and they and a lot of them are up front. I had a woman who told me that because her son was actually living with her, and she had come up and told me that well, he's moving out of the home, and I can't make the payments anymore. With, you know, with what I make, and I'm going to move in with family. So when things like that happen, then I just kind of say, okay, just. You know, leave it in nice condition. If you can clean the home, please do. You can either give me the key or drop it off at the office. Usually they do drop it off at the office. I've also had people who've gotten divorced and both parties have actually left the home and then they give me the key or they leave it off at the office. Some things happen. Other people, they have family members who've gotten sick in other states. And they just need to move and they've got to stop living where they are and and help their family out, which is understandable. 
So again, it goes back to being very careful who you choose to do business with and work with. Okay, yeah, that's great advice. Okay, and if you don't mind, I, I'm curious to know how many of these do you actually own currently? Yeah, right now I actually they're all over the place, so I don't have all of my in one market. I know people to have that, and that's kind of dangerous, but it's worked for other people. But I have the amount of a small part. I have a few dozen of these. So it's definitely been in the works. You just kind of just build it, you know, over the years. And some some homes you have to take back and then others, you know, they just exercise their option. You don't hear from them. So Yeah, is taking back a pretty gruesome process? Is it hard to do? If it's not left in good condition, the majority of homes are, but if you've heard of that 80-20 rule, it's just that 20% that, and I've had to go to eviction court before, I've had to stand in front of the judge, and, you know, most of the time, you know, the judge is kind of like, okay, you're not paying, so, (laughs) Um, but... Once they get out, uh, I've had some, and it is that 20% where, oh my goodness, it's in the headache. And that's where, you know, I really have to have my team come in and, you know, fix it up and get everything out of the home. And then on some of these, we've had to start from scratch in terms of like fixing up. I mean, we've had some pretty bad, it's the same issues over and over again when they are in pretty bad condition. But plumbing is always an issue, not so much electricity, plumbing, the floors, the hot water heater and the air conditioning is going to have to be replaced at some point. And then if you, you know, you buy homes with shingle roofs, there's always going to be an issue with roofs. If they are the shingle roofs, the metal roofs, I don't have not had many big issues with metal roofs. Actually, a tree fell on one of my homes that was a metal roof and actually it, it was fine. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So what states do you operate in? Well, for the mobile home investing, I'm in Texas. Back when I was a landlord and I was wholesaling houses and finding deals for other investors as a bird dog and wholesaler, I was actually in the Washington, D.C. area. Oh, okay. Is that where you grew up? No, no, no. Actually, I was there um, because my husband was in the military. So basically, you know, the military brought us to the Washington, D.C. area. Oh, okay. And are you guys pretty much retired now doing these Lonnie deals? I don't know about retired. Whenever I hear that word, you know, that comes to mind with being at the beach and swimming pool. And I don't really feel as bad because there's always going to be issues. And there's always going to be someone calling me, whether it's a park manager or a mobile home dealership or one of my contractors. Hey, hey, Rachel, look at this house. I'm talking with the seller. They want to sell it. Do you want to buy it or not? So a lot of it is just juggling, okay, how many projects do I have right now and fixing up some homes versus, oh, okay, I'm ready to buy. So they come up every now and then. So I just kind of continue because once these people do exercise their options, purchase, then I need to just refill the amount of homes that I have in my inventory. So have you kind of slowed down in acquisitions these days, or are you still buying the same amount as you used to? No. Before, when I first started, I was purchasing. I was just kind of like, oh, I'm always looking for sellers. I'm doing negotiating. 
But over the years, and as you build it, it kind of has trickled down. I don't have to do that kind of volume anymore. I can kind of pick and choose. And now I do. I tend to work in the nicer part and with a higher end clientele than what I did in the beginning. There are some investors, you know, their bread and butter is with the lower end part. And that's fine. It works with them. But I soon found out that my personality is really with the higher end parts and the higher end clientele. It just works with my personality. Yeah. What do you enjoy most about this strategy? About the mobile home investing? Yeah, but mobile home investing in general, what do you enjoy the most about it? What I enjoy about it, Paul, and I'll be honest, is just getting out of the office. I am not a nine-to-five cubicle in the office type of person. And back when I was in sales, I hated doing reports because I had to do it in the office. I really have always enjoyed just being out in the field, working with clients. So for me, it actually works just going out there, talking to the park managers, overseeing contractors, you know, meeting with sellers, meeting with prospective residents who want to move into these homes. Uh, That's what I enjoy the most, just kind of getting out there and being out in the field. Great. Yeah, actually getting out there and talking to people. Yeah. What do you uh, hate the most or what do people hate the most about this? Well, for me, I did, I have struggled with finding contractors because it's really hard to find contractors who deal specifically with mobile homes. And there are very few of them. And the reason why is because it's just not, to some people, it's just not enough business for them. And my handyman, I've stuck, he's stuck with me since the beginning. He's still in business, but Take, for example, over the years, there's been people who were in business, they were movers, and then they retired, or they just don't move homes anymore. There have been plumbers and carpenters who actually went back to get a regular job. So that's probably probably what I've struggled the most, just kind of finding the right people to do the work when I need to fix up these homes. These are Lonnie deals, though. From I remember from his book, he does very little fixing up, maybe pulling the existing cart, stretching it out. So are you doing the same minimal work on these? No, I forgot to mention. Yeah, that's the difference. I actually fix them up as if I were going to live in the home. So I actually do more uh, to the home than a traditional role, what Lonnie would have done to the home. I don't sell them as handyman specials. Okay, so do you have like a certain like a price per square foot? I think when I my first couple, I I think I calculated out it was like eleven dollars per square foot out here in Southern California. Is there a price per square foot you have or a certain range? No, it would actually depend on the job and the local market, and you know what the going rate is. Like for example, back you know over a decade ago when I started investing in mobile homes. It was completely fine to put carpet and, you know, that sheet vinyl in these homes. But nowadays, yeah, nowadays, and I just did sell a, a home, that is not as acceptable. Carpet at a minimum, sure, but now they're putting, you know, the laminate flooring or the LVT flooring, which is waterproof, to make it look like an apartment home, and that's what's being more acceptable with the type of clientele that I work with, which is more of a higher-end clientele. 
Now, it could be different based on an area or, you know, a different type of clientele, but that's just on my end. So I really have to just get with the times on what exactly is selling and renting is, you know, for that type of clientele in the particular area. That's interesting. I think that's gold advice right there. Just basically following the market, the trends, what's going on in the marketplace and what people are buying these days. I like that. You know what? Let's talk about funding these deals. So are you using your own money to fund these deals or investors? Yes, I actually use my own money. Um, in my book, Adventures in Mobile Homes, I talk about my story. But basically, I had a portfolio of single-family homes before. And when I made the decision to just focus on mobile homes, I sold that portfolio. And so I had cash to purchase these homes. For me, what's worth is actually paying these homes in cash and not having a mortgage or a lender involved, which can sometimes slow things down. But I will say, Paul, I do know some people who've actually used private lenders or partners to fund their deals. It's worked out for them. One of Arnie's students, and I knew him, he funded 45 of his deals through a private lender. So it really depends on, you know, what works for you as an investor and what you feel comfortable doing. Now, these are all in leased lots. So getting a mortgage is pretty much impossible, right? For a used mobile home, pretty much, unless you have a relationship with a credit union or local bank. There have been people who've been able to do that, uh, but they've had a relationship with that credit union or local bank for a long time. So, but in general, it's pretty difficult to get a loan on a used mobile home from a traditional lender. How old are these mobile homes you're looking at? Most of the homes that I look at now, they're anywhere between 10 to 15 years old. I have bought, purchased homes back when I started that were older than that, the early 80s. And there's nothing wrong with that for anyone interested, as long as the person, for me, takes care of the home. And it's just like a car, as long as they do routine maintenance on the home, it should still be a habitable home for the next person wanting to live there. If not, then you've got to put a lot of money into fixing it up. Is there a trend you see for taking back homes? Usually maybe in seven years you might be seeing or five years you might be seeing this home being brought back to you? It really depends on the person and their situation. But in general, I've, I've never had a home like the first year I've had to take it back. It's never been like that. It's been pretty much three years and on three to five years. If they've been in the home more than five years, usually they will just keep paying and exercise that option to purchase the home. But I think that more is three years to five-year mark. Do you ask for an upfront fee for the option to buy? Yes, and it is. You know, I do make it clear when we uh, need to do the paperwork, I do have a non-refundable fee that they need to pay to have the option to purchase the home. Okay. With the park manager, is there a separate agreement that you do with them, a storage agreement or some other? 
With the park manager, basically my agreement is if they fall behind on lot rent, then I'll take it over. But they do all their paperwork with the person actually living in the home. And I, I actually just send a form letter to the park manager. This person is leasing the home with an option to purchase, and they are treating the home as if they are going to exercise the option to purchase the home, and they appreciate that, that that's in writing. But any kind of paperwork with the park in terms of, you know, the lot rent and the amount and late they actually do all that paperwork with the person moving into the home. Okay. And do you find that this agreement, this subleasing agreement, basically, do you find it, you or your students find it kind of difficult sometimes with park managers? Is this, or in your area, is it kindly widely accepted? Because in Southern California, it's not very accepted. It really depends on the person that you're doing business with. So it goes back to be careful who you choose to work with. And everyone has different personalities and different ways of doing things. And if there's going to be someone like that who's kind of standoffish and they're not sure if they want to do business with you, I would say just move on and find another community that is, because eventually there will be somebody. These mobile home communities have been around longer than some single family communities. So you may find, you know, a small mom and pop willing to do business with you versus a big corporation that's not. For me, it was flip-flop. I, I don't know what it was, but uh, I was actually, it was easier for me to get into the larger parts than the smaller parts. That first part that I got turned off, as I told you, Paul, that I mentioned in my book, Adventures in Mobile Homes, that was actually a small family-owned park. And where the park manager said, no, you can't do business in this park. And, and I repeatedly went back there. So it really depends on, you know, your experience. It's different for everyone. Hey, let me interrupt this for a quick tip because there's a free offer for you to learn more about this unique and low competitive niche that I've used and I've profited from. So head to realestateaudios.com slash Rachel to claim that free gift so you can learn how to work this low competitive but profitable niche. And this is exclusive to podcast listeners. Okay. I had the same experience. I had better connection with the big corporate parks with their managers rather than the mom and pop parks. So how do you approach park managers if you're brand new to an area, brand new to a park? What do you say to them? I basically go in there as if I were going to be living in the park. And the first thing I do is, you know, I go in, I make sure that, you know, they're they're not doing anything. They're not talking to anyone. They're not on the phone. I don't want to interrupt their day. And then I sit down and that's usually, how can I help you? And then say, oh, my name's Rachel. I'm just passing by, and I wanted to get some information about the park, and that's it. And then they'll go into their whole spiel about the park and what's available, and then from there, it's more of an art than a science. You just need to get some experience and practice just building the relationship, building rapport. And I will tell you, you're not going to get a lead on a home for sale on the first uh, meeting. You may have to go a couple times. So visit the same park manager a couple times, more than a couple times? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and it's been those corporate parks, too. Uh, I remember one, I went a lot. 
And it wasn't until, uh, I don't know how, you know, how long I built the relationship. It, it had to be after a, a year of that. Then I started getting leads from that part. And, but the relationship was there. It was just I wasn't getting the leads yet. But after that time, then I actually started getting leads. And once you're in a park, most times, you know, you're there and you see stuff and you hear stuff. It could be a relationship for life if you continue that relationship, but it's up to you to continue the relationship. Because these park managers and owners, they're so busy managing the park. They've got other things on their mind. So you want to make sure you're the person on their mind. Once a week comes in, um, a seller wanting to sell one of their homes in the community. Okay, so you don't really tell them about your strategy right up front. You just kind of talk to them, build a relationship, and then continue to follow up with them. So when you follow up with them, do you just kind of ask them, hey, do you have any leads today, and do you have anything coming in? I do, but I kind of work it into the conversation. I kind of see what's going on in their life first and what's going on with the park. And then I kind of like, so is there anyone call you who's moving out? I don't say, do you have any leads for me? That's the worst thing you someone to do. I actually just ask them, is, it, is anyone in the, the park moving out? And then they look at me, oh, so what's going on? And you know what? That's a good question, you know. And then there, then it goes into, you know what? Maybe I'll call them and see if they want to sell, and then I'll let you know. And then once they give it to you, then you can take it from there. Hmm, interesting. So is that your best source of deals is from the park managers? Pretty much. Lately, it's actually been contractors, too, which is surprising. But actually, park managers and also owners of smaller parks, there's always an owner who calls me with a home in their park. It, usually, it's, it's an older home or they need lots filled. There's always a market for that with small mom and pops if anyone's interested in trying to fill lots for these small mom and pops, but you just need to make sure there's enough demand if you do start filling lots for these parts that you decide to do business. Now, do you do any other type of marketing, direct mail, cold calling, door knocking the park? No, not anymore. Back when I was wholesaling and looking for deals for other investors, I did direct mail. And I, I think I said earlier in the interview, call, I'm not an office person. So, I mean, I got a fax machine and a copier, and I was just cranking out envelopes with labels on it and letters, and that just does not work for me. So, I stopped with that. So, right now, it's more just networking. And the dealers, they also call me when they've got a client. Because a lot of times, uh, people who live in the park, their next step is to actually buy a home out on land, and that's when they call the dealers. But in order for these people to buy a home from a dealership, they need to sell their existing home. And the dealership is not going to take it as a trade. It's not going to go to it because they need to sell their new home. So that's where someone as in, someone doing this as a mobile home investor can come in and say, hey, okay, yeah, sure. Let me check out that park. And hopefully it's a park that you've already established a relationship with, the park manager or owner. If not, then you've got to go ahead and do that first. Now, when somebody's starting out, how much money do you think they're going to need? I mean, I don't know how expensive it is in your area. You know, what's recommended for as far as having cash on hand for this brand new investor? It really depends on the area 
understanding what type of community someone wants to work with, and then the type of clientele. I will say, as a general rule of thumb, the higher price, the community, the higher clientele, the more it's going to cost for you to purchase a home versus like the lower end community. Of course, you're going to have a different type of clientele. So with that being said, most of the time, if you're going to be buying this with cash, which is my experience, you want to have at least, if you can, as a general rule of thumb, it's not exact, just 50% of the value of what homes you're selling for in the area. Of course, if you can work a better deal than that, then that's fine. But if you're not at that point where you do you don't have enough cash to start buying and holding, it's probably best just to kind of start off looking for deals for other investors who do that in the area. And you can find them because they're already working in the parks and the communities. And that's where the park manager or owner may tell you, oh, this person has a home here. Or, oh, they're at that home right now, a managing contractor. They're fixing something up. So that's kind of how you can work it if you're still trying to, you know, build up your capital to start buying and holding vehicles. Okay. And what price range are you dealing with for the retail sale part? Obviously, you want the best deal that you can. But for me, personally, it's anywhere I'm in the 15000 to $20,000 range for these homes. Um, and then you've got to figure in, you know, the fix-up cost. I'm actually getting the corporate right now with a lot of the contractors that I work with. But for people who are just starting out, you got to figure in a higher rate. They'll probably give you the retail rate unless you have a relationship already with an existing contractor or if you do some of the work yourself. You know, you got to figure in those costs. Okay, so fifteen, twenty thousand that's your purchase price or your resale price? No, my purchase price. Oh, okay. I don't know if this is coined from Lonnie, but is that the whole 50% rule, 50% of what the retail price is going to be minus repairs? Sometimes I try to do it. I mean, it really depends on the home. If it's in a community where there's a lot of demand, I will pay a little bit more as a premium because I know I can just fix up the home and then fill it right away with a good resident. If there's not that much demand in the area, it's not as in high demand, then I can't pay that price, obviously, as a premium. So it really would depend on the area. And be careful because just because a home is, you know, lower value doesn't mean it's going to sell that. Okay. So you do look at a demand to determine kind of what, what your price is going to be. So how do you figure out the demand in a park? Oh, the park manager or owner, they'll tell you, oh, this well, we filled this in five days, or this, oh, it's been sitting there for three months. They'll tell you exactly what the demand is. As long as you build that you know, you got to have that relationship already. So, okay, it goes back again, 180 degrees to having a good relationship with park managers. Now, do you ever have a good relationship with realtors working the park? I have met realtors over the years, and they've given me leads on things like homes out on land, or they're listing a home in a park, but that's never really went as far as leads. I haven't even taken it to that level. 
So for the most part, I actually deal more with park managers and owners because I feel for the most part, real estate agents, they're not as familiar with the mobile home as a general rule of thumb. So, and a lot of times it's an accidental listing that they get and they're just there trying to, you know, offload it as a favor to a client. Okay. So you buy them personally about 10 to 20,000, I think you said, and do your students buy at price range less than that, $1,000 to $5,000? Some of them have. Actually, in California, I've had some students. Uh, now, the lot room is high in California, but they've bought it as low as like three or 4000 in California. But then they've had a $1,000 a month lot rent. Yeah. Okay. Do you close on these properties directly or do you use a escrow or attorney? I don't know if it's a, the states you deal with are attorney states, but how do you close on these? Sure. Now we just do the paperwork, and uh, for most people, it's going to be with your local DMV or whatever the manufactured housing entity for these homes are in the area. And it's just a matter of paperwork. If you're just starting out, you might want to contact them to ask them, you know, what you need if you're going to be purchasing a mobile home and for the title transfer. And they should be able to answer your questions on that. As far as these homes and these communities, no, I don't use an attorney or any kind of a closing or escrow agent. Okay. Yeah, and I find that to be the usual case. So Texas, you guys use the DMV. Is that pretty standard for surrounding states? Yeah. And in Texas, there's actually an entity that deals with manufactured housing. It's a government entity. It's just like the DMV. So, you know, it's going to depend on your area. But for the most part, it's either the government entity in charge of titling the mobile homes or your local DMV. Okay. Yeah. California's the same way. It's the HCD, whatever that stands for, state entity. Okay. So you are meeting with these sellers face-to-face. You're never doing any kind of negotiation over the phone? No. And a lot of times it takes a lot of back and forth. And I will say, you just need to make sure you're meeting with everyone on the title, because if there's a, another person on the title and you don't meet with them, I've had these cases involving estate, the deal could fall apart. Basically, you know, one party could want to sell, but the other person on the title may not want to sell. And I've had to go through that in the past. So just make sure you're on the same page with everyone who's on the title. Okay. And then when you... Meet with them. The closing, basically, it's just like the old days. You just meet with the seller, sign the title, and hand them over a check? Yes. Yeah, so basically, we do all that. You know, I hand them over, you know, what the funds, and then they hand me the key. Now, I usually, I get possession on that day. I hand them the check. There have been instances where they were waiting to move into another house or apartment, and I just had to hold back a certain amount of funds. Uh, I can't give a whole, the whole amount, but they needed that to get into their next home. And then once they moved out, then I give them the rest of that and then they give me the key. So I haven't had any issues with that. Okay. I mean, working out some things, whatever the seller needs, you kind of just work it out creatively as you go. Yeah, pretty much. And I will say, this is a people business. And this is what Lonnie says. So you need to see what is going to their heads and how you can do a win-win situation for everyone so that everyone's happy. Otherwise, if someone's not happy, it's going to come back in sometime in the future down the road. Great advice, yeah. 
Now, before you meet with the seller, what are some things that somebody should know and research before they actually go to view the house? Well, the first thing you want to definitely do is make sure you can do business in that community. And if you're not sure, you need to talk to the manager or the park owner of the community just to make sure you're on the same page. Another thing I do just before I'm going to meet with the seller, I actually go into the office and I say, oh, hi, I'm here. You know what? I'm just going to meet with that seller down the street. They're like, oh, okay, yeah, let me know how it goes. And then afterwards, I actually take the time to come back and report back what happened to the manager. I know some people will be kind of like, oh, that's so much work, you know, going back into the office. But it's also a way to build a rapport with some of the managers and owners of the community as well. Too. And then to keep them in the loop on what's going on, because they want to know, too, what's going on with that home of those people who want to sell and they want to move out. Uh, that's kind of how I work it. Okay. And then you have a price in mind before you go and meet with the seller? Actually, I have a general idea because if I've never seen the inside of the home, I don't know what the condition is. But I have a general idea based on my market research per the manager or owner of the community of what homes have sold for that particular year, that particular square footage, number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms. But I kind of have a general idea and of what I want to pay, you know, in cash. It's going to be a cash sale for the home, but I don't really know exactly how much I'm going to pay for the home until I see the inside and the condition of the home. Okay, so with your experience, you kind of come up with a construction costs on the spot. When you teach students, what do you tell them as far as coming up with construction costs on the spot? Actually, I don't. I actually get my contractors involved. If someone's willing to work with me, Probably the flooring is bad, or yeah, I do admit the hot water heater needs to be changed. I'm like, would it be okay if my contractor came in to look at it and then give me a price on how much it would cost to exchange it out? And at that point, usually if they're willing to work with me on that, then it's a matter of just getting the estimates to see how much a particular item is going to cost. And then that's part of the negotiating on that. I just don't say, oh, I, I can just pay this based on, you know, what's in my head. I actually show them evidence of what it's going to cost. Do the contractors meet with you ever with the seller on your first visit with them? Usually not, no. Usually the first visit is just building a for the seller to see if they're actually, are they serious about moving and selling? Or they're just kind of, oh, I'm just thinking about it. It won't be for the next couple of months. But you're there to build a relationship. Okay. So do you have a sales process that you teach your students? Or are you just kind of off the cuff? You just walk in and, and you kind of already know what to do with the seller? Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. And what I tell my students is like, there's no right or wrong answer how to build rapport and build a relationship. The important thing is that you show up and that you keep showing up. That's what's going to differentiate yourself between you and another investor who tries to do everything on the phone. Most people, you know, we're not robots, even, you know, with technology nowadays. Most people would rather meet someone in person to sell something like a home that matters so much to them than sell it to someone over the phone. They don't know. They've never met. They don't know what they're going to do with the home. They don't know what they're going to take care of it. 
that's just human nature. So everything is just showing up and getting experience on what works for you as a person on how you build a relationship with someone else. And everyone's different. Is there an inspection list that you teach? Yes, I mean, I do, and I think I do have a list in my book, Adventures in Mobile Homes. And it's just a general idea, but I don't recommend anyone printing out a list and then bringing it to their house. That's too business-like. What's worked for me is actually taking pictures and actually having just a notebook and start writing notes as if you were uh, going to buy it for yourself. Because what I find, most people, they get kind of turned off. That, this is just my experience. If you're too business-like and you're too corporate-like and you come in as a corporation versus if you're just yourself buying it because you want to purchase a home, you're interested in it to see if it's fit for you and what you do. You mentioned some things already about what you look for in inspections. Is there anything else you look for? Roof, water heater? I think you mentioned those too. Yes. I mean, there's a whole list of things that you want to do, but as a general rule of thumb, you want to go into that home as if you were going to buy it to you and your family. So what would you like to be fixed if you were going to live in the home? Are the lights working? Is the plumbing working? Is the toilets working? Is the tub working? Is there leaks underneath the floor? Let's look at the roof. Is there any leaks coming from the roof? Look at the gutters. Look at the landscaping. Just as if you were going to purchase a home for yourself is a general rule of thumb. And so there could be a whole laundry list of items depending on, you know, the individual as a person. But for me, I look at it as if I were going to live in the home myself and what items I would like to be fixed if I were going to move in the home. And I think from there, I mean, it just kind of gives people an idea of what to do. Yeah, that's great advice. When calculating the construction cost afterwards, do you just recommend people just to get a, a few contractors to give them a bid? That's what's worked for me. You never want to guess how much it's going to cost unless you're doing the work yourself. But even if you're doing the work yourself, you've got to get a list of, you know, how much the materials are going to cost and then transportation costs, shipping costs, if you're going to be paying for shipping, also disposal costs, how much is that going to be. So there's still some more costs that you need to get. Honestly, you're not going to be able to put the deal together. It's very rare someone puts a deal together on the first meeting. And I could say that as an investor, for doing this for a long time, usually it's not that way. It's over a series of meetings, face-to-face meetings, going back and forth, negotiating, that actually the deal comes together. And it's a team effort on both the seller and you as an investor. Okay. And how long does it take for construction from beginning to end? It really depends on how much work is involved for the home. But I will say, most of the stuff that I do, I don't do full-on rehab. If a home looks like, oh my goodness, there's just way too much work in this home for me to do, and it's going to take too long. You know, mind you, when I'm fixing up these homes, I have to pay lot rent to the park on an empty home. Then I just pass on the deal, and then I just pursue something that's not going to take as long. You know, a lot of what I do is cosmetic, remove this, replace it with this. 
Um, I don't get into full-on rehab where the whole home has to be gutted. That's just too much work, and that could take a long time. But if you have experience in that or you know people who can do it a good job in a good, reasonable amount of time, there's nothing wrong with that. I just don't pursue those types of opportunities. Okay, so you are only doing cosmetic rehab here. Are you replacing tubs or anything like that? I've done tubs. I've done floor work. There's always some subfloor repair work. I've removed vanities, replaced them with new ones. But in terms of, like, I'm talking about regutting a whole house, removing the entire infrastructure, if it's the floor or doing re-plumbing the whole house, rewiring the whole home, I don't do any of that. Okay. Is there always a common problem that you find? For me, the common problem out here was always rotted out subfloors or or holes in the roof. Is that common out there as well? Yeah. So basically, the common issues that I've run across with my experience have been, yes, some of these floors, I'll be honest, with the mobile homes, some of them don't have a good foundation. They're made with particle board. And once you get that wet, it's going to, you know, soak it up like a sponge and crumble. So there's always some soft spots in the floor. Usually the carpet may need to be replaced or we may need to lay some laminate or LDT on the waterproof. So there's always plumbing issues. So of that, I always factor it in. Whether it's leaks underneath the sink, the tub, there's plumbing issues. You know, that area of the access kind of behind there. So some of them have, do have the gray piping still. That will need to be replaced. If the tub is in really bad condition, I actually remove the tub and put a new one in. And then if the vanity is in really bad condition, I'm talking it's just water damage or it's just not modern anymore, I remove that vanity and replace it with a new one. Hot water heater, it'll go out after a certain amount of time. Heating and air conditioning as well, too. And you always want to look for, yes, the roof with the, if there's any, you know, leaks uh, and also water stains on that. So those are some of the issues that I go through every time I buy a home or take back at home. And, and, and sometimes there's just one or two of those issues, not the entire home. And then there's others that, yeah, there's more issues than, than that is needed. It depends on the home. Okay. And is it important to find a contractor that has experience with mobile homes? I think it is, and it's very hard to. Probably the best source of referrals is going to be that park. They probably have their own, who they use, and also the mobile home dealership. And you can also talk to some homeowners. Maybe some homeowners have used some uh, contractors who specialize in working uh, with mo- on mobile homes in the past, too. But that's going to be your best sources of information. And then if you want to take it a step further, this is what I've done. Just go to your local mobile home supply store. And sometimes they do have referrals of contractors to go in there to get supplies who work on mobile homes too. Okay. Do you ever recommend buying it seller financing? Is that where the owner of the home is financing it for you and then you pay them and then you get someone else? Yeah, yeah. So just purchasing it from the seller with payments and how you structure it, just I guess there's all kinds of ways to do it. You've never done that or your students don't do it? I've never done that. I don't recommend it for someone who's just beginning. 
I actually had a friend who did that on her first deal. Not for mobile homes, a single fan, it was a disaster. The reason why is that you don't know, I mean, you're paying so much might happen to that owner in the future, where they're going to be, where they're going to be in life. If it's something that you want to structure on a mobile home deal, just make sure that you have everything done and your paperwork in order just in case things do go awry in the future on that. Or try to make it for a shorter period of time. Back when I was investing in single-family homes, I did have a few deals where the owner actually just took a second on it, and then I, I had to just cash them out in a certain period of time. But in terms of paying someone and then financing it on a small mobile home deal, most people just kind of want to get out of the situation. You could also bring in a private lender or take on a business partner, too. Yeah, that would probably be much easier anyway. You're dealing with small Prices anyway. So, okay, managing contractors, are you kind of a, a micromanager? Are you visiting them every day, every week? How are you managing them? No, no, no. I, I don't micromanage. That's not, not how I do business. So, basically, the contractors I work with, if they're on a job, most times I just, okay, when are you going to start the job? And usually they will just call or text me, okay, I'm going to the home, I'm starting the job. And then they'll let me know as they progress. And then once they're done, they will just kind of send me the after pictures that the, the job is done. And then from there, I'll just go ahead and send them payment through the mail. I used to actually, back when I first started, meet with them at the site, let them in the home. And then sometimes I'd actually be there as they did the work. But I don't do that anymore just because I've got other properties to manage to. And the more that you do, the, the less you're going to have with that. But in the beginning, it's actually a good learning lesson, a good way to build rapport with your contractors. And I also, okay, well, I would inspect the work and meet them at the property when it's done. And I don't do that anymore. So I pretty much let them, since I've been working with them for years, let them do the job, send me pictures, and then I just send them payment through the mail. Okay, great. You said you pay them through the mail? You just send a check in the mail to them? Oh, okay. Interesting. Is there any like methods to managing them? I've heard people, if the contractor agrees to a certain timeline, they say, okay, it's going to take me a month to do this, and they go over that, then you lower that bid and you pay them less? That never happens. With the people I work with now, like I said in the beginning, I'm just very careful who I decide to do business with. And most of these contractors, they work for the firm as contractors, so they already have an idea. They should of when the job would be done. Okay. Any other tips for contractors, brand new people coming into the business? In the beginning, you're going to have to go through a lot of people, and I did the same thing. You know, once you find a few contractors, my tip is just to always be looking out for new contractors in those areas that you're going to need, whether you're going to be needing a handyman, a floor person, needing an air conditioning, plumbing, any of that. Uh, because sometimes the contractors you work with, and it happens to me, they get busy or they're out of town or, you know, they've got a family emergency and or, you know, they're out of business. Same thing. So you always want to have backup contractors for any of these 
issues that you need fixing in the future or if you need them done today. You know, you want to keep always be on the lookout looking for contractors to do the work. Okay. How do you go about finding buyers? The park managers, probably the best source of marketing. The park managers or the park owners, sometimes they'll put a feeler out there because, you know, every month, and it's still done like this today, their residents come in to pay lot rent. And so they can say, oh, by the way, this home is on the market, which is yours. If you know have a family member or a friend, then feel free to call this number. And then that's basically the best way of marketing that I've got. In the past, I've done everything, even in Lonnie's book, like going to the laundromat, going to the local businesses, gone to the mobile home dealerships, put signs in the neighborhood. The best thing has been just working with the park managers and owners and then some of the residents and even the contractors who work in the park just to let them know, hey, I've got this home available. If you know anyone, have them call me and I can give them them information. So that's pretty much how I work it. Okay. And do you ever just sell these for cash? I actually have a price that I have and I've had people who've come up and they've gone to the open house like, oh, I can buy it in cash. But then when push comes to shove, they really don't have the cash. And they're like, you know what? I meant I can put this much as a movement fee and then pay off the rest. And I really have not worked with those people. So you're doing a lease option here. When you're marketing it, are you putting a price of the sale? Yes, I am. I am putting a price. And there are people who say, well, I have the cash purchase it, but that never works out. So I just think this is the option price if you decide that you do want to buy the home. And then this is, you know, this is how it works. This is a fee to move in, which is the non-refundable option. And then this is the monthly case. And most people I work with, it's not even a matter of price or monthly payment. None of that. What they want to do is move it to the community. I want to be down the street from my mother so she can watch the kids because she's lived in this park for 20 years. So it's never with the types of people that I choose to do this. It's never that. As long as they can, and they think, no, I can make these things. So, you know, it's not even about that. The people who make it about that, I usually don't think about them. So. Even from the beginning, you're picking out the right community, the ones that are going to not give you any hassle from the get-go. Correct. Well, how do you determine the monthly payment? Basically, it's just what the going rate is for the area for whether it be a three-bedroom, two-bedroom, or a four-bedroom home. I tend to, in the beginning, like my first year, I will admit, it was a two-bedroom, one-bath, and it did work out. But I tend to only go for three-bedrooms. And up nowadays, because I think that's kind of what the type of clientele that I usually work with are looking for. Two bedrooms are kind of hard, harder for me because it's a different type of clientele. So you're basically advertising these as rent to own or a lease option? Are you actually saying that in the ad? Yeah, it's just lease with option to purchase. And most people, they know what it is because some of the parks do it. And so they already know what it is. And then it's just the park manager saying, okay, just call this number. And it may not be on one of their homes, it may be on one of mine. 
you know, or if they have one, then I and I think, oh, and then they say, oh, this is not a fit. We want something, you know, with this feature in it or an island. I'm like, okay, maybe the park has this. It works together. So depending on the types of people that we run across. Okay. Are you ever looking at your return on your investment? You ever calculate that out when it comes to coming up with a purchase price or resell? Because out here. There's an instructor that he teaches that come up with your price based on what you want your return on your money to be. Do you ever look at ROI? No, not nowadays. I'll be honest. I don't even know the return on my first deal. On my first deal, I don't know what my return was, but I'm pretty sure that I received all my money back or plus some in the first year. You know, that includes what they paid me monthly and then what they paid me as a move-in fee to move into the home. I guess that would be 100% return on the first year. But typically nowadays, if I get my money back, usually in year three, and the cash flow amount usually is anywhere between five dollars and $600 a month. And the, the reason why is because I buy it in cash. I don't have a mortgage on the home. So that could be different for someone who knows the So the lease, the monthly space rent paid to the park, the buyer pays that, right? Correct. Yes. And if they default, then I take it over. Mm-hmm. Do you deduct the rent from that to give them a fair rent or whatever rent they're paying you? That's just the market rent, regardless of the lease, the space rent? No, it's included. So they pay my portion for me, but I say this is what it's going to be with the lock. But then you got to go to the office because they have paperwork with the park and pay them their lock rent. I don't do any of that. And then you will pay me and then that's it. Let's say the space rent for the park is 500 per lot. The market rent for that particular home is 1000 You'll be cash flowing 500 Exactly. It makes it easy. Now, last couple questions. So how would you recommend somebody brand new starting mobile homes? Hey, let me interrupt this for a quick tip because there's a free offer for you to learn more about this unique and low competitive niche that I've used and I've profited from. So head to realestateaudios.com slash Rachel to claim that free gift so you can learn how to work this low competitive but profitable niche. And this is exclusive to podcast listeners. I think the first thing to do for anyone starting out is just to kind of assess your personal finances. Look at your situation, see how much money is going in and out. Do you have enough money to start buying and holding properties? And also, do you have the time to pursue this? Because a lot of this, it is a lot of face-to-face, meeting with the park managers, meeting with the sellers. And it is going to be hard for someone with a full-time job in the beginning, but trying to set aside that time. And then you probably want to just go ahead and start reading up on the subject, listening to audios like this, reading books on the subject. I made a blog post on my website, the top 10 mobile home investing books. Check a few of those books out and start reading and getting familiarizing yourself with the mobile home investing. And then from there, you got to learn your market. So it's just getting out there, knowing what communities you want to do business and trying to get into those communities and then seeing what the market rents and what the homes sell for in the area of the communities you want to do business in. Great. Awesome. Last thing, is there any big mistakes in the past you've made that any of your students can learn from? Oh, yeah. I've made plenty. But probably the number one mistake, they just look at the home. 
and see, wow, that home is so cheap. You know, the seller wants this much for it, and I'm going to buy it. And I did that. I wrote an article on it, my $2,000 nightmare. And I actually bought a home for $2,000, a mobile home, with a two-bedroom, one bath. And she wanted to get out of the home. And, I mean, again, it's just cosmetic. But the home was so cheap. Why? Because it was in a park, a lower-end park, that I personally, looking back now, would not do business. Because it just attracted the type of clientele that I just don't feel comfortable working with. So what I did was to market that home was I tried to attract the type of clientele that I do work in, which is nicer parks. And, you know, I actually have some residents who have family and friends. They actually went to this home in another community. And they said, well, do you have any others in nicer communities? And it kept coming up. So eventually, after, you know, months of doing that, I just sold to another investor who actually moved it out on his piece of land. I was lucky. And it was a lesson. So my number one tip is just do business the way you want to do it that works with your personality. So build your business around you. Don't try to build yourself around the business. That's kind of my number one That's great. I love that advice. Okay, so how can people reach you? My website is adventuresinmobilehomes.com. They can check it out. And I also have a free book, 10 Do's and Don'ts to Get Started with Mobile Home Investing, if they want to learn more. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rachel. All right, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. And please feel free to share this interview and podcast with friends and family. And if you're looking to get a free learning tool about this niche, head on over to realestateaudios.com slash Rachel for a free gift exclusive to podcast listeners and to learn more about mobile home investing. Thanks for listening.